This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. One of the things that we've been watching, certainly we continue to get some earnings stories, Tim, and Mattel reported out after the close, we were breaking it down. Stock is down about 1.7%. That despite the company coming out and surpassing uh, analyst estimates for the fourth quarter, they had a lot of kind of beats, if you will, in terms of uh, their metrics. Uh, I caught up earlier with the chairman and CEO of Mattel, Enon Kreis. He was in LA. We talked about a lot of things. And in this excerpt, he talks about why this quarter is just one step in Mattel's long-term strategy. Check it out. This is not just about the quarter or the year. It's about a multi-year turnaround that is tracking very well, uh, which puts us in a strong position to continue to increase profitability and accelerate our growth in uh, 2021 and beyond. You know, talk to us about that, because, you know, reading through last night some of the, the research and there are, you know, folks saying, well, listen, it's really because of the pandemic. Families are home. They've had to find different ways to spend time with their families, uh, games, you name it, and kids, you know, being at home that uh, parents were spending a lot more on toys. Talk to us a little bit about what you have been doing to really kind of juice some of the brands that have been, you know, that have been in your portfolio for, for a long time. The demand driven by COVID is, is difficult to quantify as the industry was projected to grow even before the pandemic. And we believe that much of our overall performance has been driven by the work of our organization and by the strength of our brands and quality of our products. So, you know, we believe the categories where we are a global leader, mm-hmm. dolls, uh, vehicles, and infant or the preschool will continue to perform well. And we expect to accelerate um, uh, growth and increase uh, overall share. Listen, I have grown up with Mattel. I'm from a large family. You know, inheriting my older sister's Barbies was a big thing. And then I've got a 17-year-old where I've Biddy Baby, Kit, Marie Grace. These were all <laughs> yeah. uh, throughout yeah. my home. Um, so tell me a little bit about some of the brands. Talk to me about Barbie. Barbie continued to go from strength to strength, up 18% in the quarter and for the year with retail sales up more than 30%. Mm. Uh, Barbie ended up being the overall uh, number one toy property globally uh, for the industry, both in the fourth quarter and full year. Uh, The Barbie Dream House was the number one toy in the U.S. in the fourth quarter and the full year. Had one of those in my house. I had one of those in my (laughs) house a few years ago. (laughs) So you you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's been really, you know, an incredible multi-year journey for Barbie, um, carrying the flag for diversity, inclusivity, and purposeful play. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what is is interesting is that, you know, without taking anything away from the incredible success of Barbie, uh, this is, you know, very much a story about the Mattel playbook. Because the Barbie success is driven by the same methodology, same capabilities, uh, same approach um, uh, that we that we applied across uh, our entire product offering. Meaning it's what? About brand. Yeah. So it's about brand purpose, mm-hmm. uh, design-led innovation, cultural relevance, and and executional excellence. There's a reason why you play with our toys. It's beyond the play system. Our toys carry. You know, carry messages, and it's very clear with Barbie, as I mentioned earlier, really mm-hmm. carrying the flag for uh, diversity, inclusivity, 
um, uh, evolving body, ethnicity, uh, storytelling, and likewise, American Girl, one of uh, the, the most you know, rich uh, brands in terms of content and messaging um, about uh, the historical uh, doll figures and teaching and, um, and, and you know, working with parents as a trusted partner evolve and develop their children. It was, as you said, really a blowout year, a blowout quarter for you guys. Um, is this as good as it gets? Well, absolutely not. We just announced that we expect to accelerate our growth in 2021 mm-hmm. and also provided guidance, or I should say, sorry, not guidance, but goals for 22 and 23, where we uh, still expect to achieve mid-single digit growth in our top line. And and uh, on profitability, we also expect to achieve between 775 to $800 million EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA in 2021. This is following a growth of almost $600 million EBITDA between 2018 to 2020. And we expect to achieve mid-teen um, operating income margin by 2023. Mm-hmm. So from where we sit today, you um, you know you should expect to see us accelerating our top line growth and continuing to improve profitability not just in 2021 but for the two years after that. Enon, what I'm curious to you about is you know how important I've heard you talk a lot about you know growth and direct to consumer. Um, I did a lot of buying online um, when I was buying for my daughter years ago. Um, e commerce. The strength that you've seen, does that become an even bigger part of the business going forward? I'm curious about that. Yes, this was another major driver for us and part of a uh, big part of our success in the quarter and in the year. E-commerce grew significantly for us uh, and continued to maintain momentum. Mm-hmm. In the fourth quarter, we grew 40%. And for the full mm-hmm. year, we were up 50%. Wow. And at this point, uh, online retail and e-commerce represents about a third of our retail sales. We were the number one manufacturer in e-commerce in the U.S. in the fourth quarter, and we grew our e-commerce share in the U.S. in the fourth quarter and the full year. All right, and that was Mattel CEO Enon Kreis uh, catching up with him earlier to talk about their latest quarter and really the outlook. And you can hear more of that interview, Tim. It's coming up on our weekend show. It's also going to be on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com. But, you know, he said obviously they got a kick from the pandemic, but they've also been putting some strategies into place to really, you know, kind of set uh, demand for years to come. Yeah, you know, I, we, we talk a lot about pandemic trends and yeah. I, I think one pandemic trends that trend that actually makes me smile is the idea of parents and grandparents spoiling their children <laughs> because they've been stuck inside and buying them dolls i mean doll sales surging nine percent for all of 2020 what it's a number huge. right and they because of the pandemic i know and they were struggling a lot with yeah. barbies and american girls so uh they definitely think it, it looks like things are back on track so uh be sure to check out that full interview this is bloomberg business week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. In this latest episode of Bloomberg Studio 1.0, host Emily Chang sits down for an exclusive interview with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. In this excerpt, Nadella discusses antitrust issues facing the tech sector. Take a listen. You need to have a business model um, that really is aligned with the world doing well. Uh, I think that's what's being litigated, right, which is there are certain categories uh, of products where the unintended consequences 
uh, of the growth in that category or lack of competition in it uh, creates issues. And so that's what I think people are all looking at and saying, hey, what's the fix for that? Uh, but I don't think big by itself is bad, or but competition is good. And every business, in particular the businesses that are large and have high scale, the unintended consequences of your scale cannot be dealt after the fact. They need to be dealt while you're scaling. So when it comes to the deplatforming of, of hey, President Trump, for Arielle, example, should a after? Facebook or a Twitter or Google or YouTube or Twitch have the power to say who we can and cannot hear from? And if not, who should? Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those places where I think unilateral action uh, by individual companies in democracies like ours is just not, I think, long-term stable. Uh, we do need to be able to have framework of laws and norms, uh, which are societal norms, around even Internet safety uh, and what is uh, the public square that really is in alignment with a thriving democracy. So we just need to get to a stable state uh, in that, because otherwise, depending on any one individual CEO in any one of these companies to make calls that are going to really help us maintain something as sacred and as important as our democracy in the long run is just no way at least I as a citizen would advocate for. Now, Slack has alleged that Microsoft combining Teams into Office is anti-competitive. Um, what's your response to that? How does the landscape change now that Slack has been bought by Salesforce and is part of this bigger entity? I think both Slack and Salesforce have been successful. Uh, for example, I always point out that when we think about what they were able to do, I always ask the question, would Slack have even existed if it was not for the free access they had on top of, say, the Windows platform? They didn't have to call Microsoft. They didn't have to go through any of our app stores. They didn't have need any uh, you know, of our permission uh, compared to any of the other platforms that they're available on. We perhaps provide the most open platform in Windows and even on Office 365. You can, in fact, use all of the APIs that we expose, integrate with any application, uh, and people use it. If you look at even the usage reports, there's Slack usage and Microsoft 365 usage. So, and same thing with Salesforce. So the fact that they're combining will compete with them, and they will also cooperate with them and provide them uh, access to our platforms. And I think they should measure it by what type of success they've had on top of our platform. You worked at Microsoft through its own antitrust battles. You remember what that was like. It's been called the, the lost decade, if you will. What cultural risks do you believe these companies face, even if they're not broken up? What's happening on the inside as these investigations play out? I don't know if there are real parallels between what happened with Microsoft and any of them, but I would say I think the core, as I, I always go back, is you know, if you have a business and a business model where when you are doing well, around you people are doing well, uh, and that is something that your own employees feel, then I think things will work out culturally. When that is not true, I think it's very, very hard. Uh, because one of the things I feel is, as somebody said, you got to keep it simple. Uh, what you say, what you do, and what you think all need to be consistent. You can't sort of have uh, real distance between those three things. And that's what at least would be my advice and, uh, to anybody, in, in starting with ourselves.
All right, that was, of course, uh, Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Check it out. You can uh, see that entire interview. That's going to happen at 5.30 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg TV. And, of course, that's host Emily Chang sitting down for that exclusive with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, who was the cover story for Bloomberg Business Week. Um, I'd have to look at, I'll have to pull it out and tweet it, but uh, some time ago, but it was a really nice deep dive into kind of who he is and how his approach has differed from some of the other folks who've been or who did run Microsoft. I, I love that answer that he gave to Emily's question about Salesforce and, and Slack teaming up. I mean, without skipping a beat, Nadella talks about the Windows platform and the way that Slack was able to succeed because it was on the Windows platform. And he did say, you know, the fact that they're combining We'll compete with them, but we'll also cooperate with them. Sort of the, the frenemies idea with these companies. They're all so big that they have to work together. But, you know, they're also competitors. Yeah. I mean, this is what's interesting about the technology environment, right? Like, you do have to, you know, work with them, you know, work with others, work with your competitors often. Um, but it makes for kind of an interesting environment. And you're right. He didn't miss a beat. <laughs> um, that's for sure. So check that out, that full episode. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the drive to the close. Just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It does feel like another day where we're just trying to take it in, trying to slow it down a little bit and see where we go from here in terms of inflation, in terms of growth. Uh, a lot to get to. Let's bring in David Dietz back with us, Managing Principal and Senior Portfolio Strategist at PPAC, Private Wealth Management. They've got $8 billion in assets under management. David, once again, joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. It is kind of... I don't know, David, we've, we've been bouncing around the last couple of days kind of quietly. What do you, I don't know, how do you see the market environment right now? Well, we've had a wonderful period since the pandemic low, March 23rd, um, and really for good reason. We've got, um, you know, two vaccines being rolled out now, a third one from J&J soon to be approved. That's the, the key factor that's going to drive consumers reengaging with the economy. Of course, the Federal Reserve has done the right thing, lowering interest rates down to close to zero, um, stabilizing all things having to do with credit, giving uh, investors tremendous confidence. Corporate earnings, you know, Carol, at the start of Q4, they were projecting double-digit year-over-year losses. Right. Uh, but now we may actually have a chance to have our first year-over-year -year slight gain since the pandemic started. So the improvements versus expectations have been wonderful. And that's not just on earnings. It's also on sales. And uh, the beats have been some of the best we've seen in the last decade. And of course, they're putting the finishing touches on a fiscal stimulus package, which will help the most challenged Americans get through this period. So there's a lot of tailwind here for the market. What do you make of uh, Fed Chair Powell's comments earlier today? Quote, we are still very far from a strong labor market whose benefits are broadly shared. Look, you're talking about the market. We had record highs earlier this week, uh, but still millions of Americans struggling to find work. Um, what do you make of, of what Powell commented on earlier today? Well, he's absolutely right. We've got a lot 
to a lot to do in terms of uh, getting the rate of unemployment down. I think he'd be the first to admit that there's a strong role for fiscal stimulus to narrowly target those Americans, those Main Street businesses that are so challenged amid these pandemic woes and just lowering interest rates everywhere um, is kind of a, a blunt tool to, to achieve that, although certainly a necessary one. We were most focused on his comments on inflation. Um, you know, that's the big problem. Right. The, the, he said he's going to keep that, those interest rates down low until we're well past the 2% inflation rate. Well, you know, if you look at the commodity market, Tim, inflation is starting to move with uh, commodities like oil, lumber, and corn moving up. And of course, the other thing I look at is the built-in inflation expectations when you look at tips, Treasury inflation protection securities versus conventional treasuries, they're now forecasting 2.2, over 2% in terms of inflation the next 10 years. So inflation expectations are moving up. So do you anticipate, uh, David, that we could see significant inflation and yet still have millions of workers out of work? (laughs) You know, unfortunately, I've been doing this long enough. I saw that in the 70s. They call that stagflation. So it's more than theoretically possible. Um, Certainly in the financial markets, in the commodity markets, we are seeing inflation. In the SPAC market, the IPO market, the cryptocurrency market, we are seeing huge inflation. So obviously there there is two economies out there. That's one of our concerns here as as a nation. Um, But certainly if the vaccines are successful and people re-engage, you could see a rush to travel, a rush to eat out, a rush to, to, to take advantage of a lot of things. But that may not be enough to get everyone who's most challenged back to work. So certainly that is a possibility. So, David, where are you seeing opportunity right now? I know you have a focus on dividend paying stocks, Citigroup, Verizon, Exxon. Um, Why are you optimistic there? Well, so, you know, I think that the next 30 basis points in terms of interest rate move is more likely to be up then down. And when interest rates move up, of course, the the highest duration uh, bonds in the market go down the hardest and the shortest duration go down the least. So if you take that analogy to the stock market, growth stocks where they're being valued on earnings to be going out years, if not decades, um, may be, have the, the biggest challenge there in a higher interest rate environment, while uh, dividend-paying stocks, so-called value stocks, where there's more cash flow immediately, more dividend may actually hold up better. And of course, large swaths of the that economy, like, for example, financials, will actually do better if their most important product, their loans, can attract a higher interest rate. So did you say specific names? Forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for me, the quintessential um, pandemic recovery play is Exxon. Now, huh. why? Hmm. Because you know, we didn't use fossil fuels last year um, because everyone was locked down. I mean, just think back to last Thanksgiving. Everyone stayed home. And what are we going to do next Thanksgiving? We're going to see grandma. We're going to see the kids. We're going to travel, right? And so energy use, I think, is going to explode. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, a few years ago, uh, fossil fuel prices were over $100 a barrel. Right now it's knocking on 60 And so then I'm looking at, well, what if I'm wrong? So I'm looking for the biggest publicly traded player out there. That would be Exxon, who, by the way, is paying a 7.4% dividend. You'd have to have a very high treasury before you're not going to be making more money with the Exxon dividend right. um, than, than, the tre- than the treasury. And, of course, Exxon's making all the right moves now to protect that dividend slash capital expenditures, which, by the way, if all energy producers slash capital expenditures, that's going to reduce supply. That's going to push up um, 
prices when the demand recovers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that supply-demand equation, because I feel like pre-COVID, we were still talking that there was a fair amount of supply still in the system. You really do think that that gets, that dramatically changes when we come back? Well, unfortunately, I mean, we, 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 you know, people have very little confidence as to the continuing demand on fossil fuel prices for many reasons, including the, the political winds and so forth. So you know, whatever people were going to do in terms of exploration before, they're not going to do it now. And mm. so ironically, that will have the tendency to, to push up prices. So that, I think, yeah. um, deserves some place in your portfolio. All right, we got to run. Hey, David, thank you so much. David Dietz, Managing Principal, Senior Portfolio Strategist over at PPAC Private Wealth Management, $8 billion in assets under management. Joining us on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.